Hello, this is Rob Collins. I'm excited to present this bonus episode of Square Peg, a conversation with Greg Lefebvre, an artist and host of the podcast The Compulsive Storyteller. A colleague connected Greg and me because of the overlap between our shows. Frank Carver was a bit of a compulsive storyteller, and I became one as well in the making of Square Peg. So I started listening to Greg's podcast and really enjoyed it. You can find it in all the apps or at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. But for now, here's my conversation with Greg. Well, Greg, it is a uh, it is a pleasure to speak with you. I'm excited about this opportunity to talk about our compulsions, how we uh, both came to be telling stories on on a podcast, on our respective podcasts, and I'd like to begin just by getting a little bio of you. I know you're a an accomplished uh, artist in several media, and I just love to hear where you started and how you came to be telling your stories in the form that you are. I started as a child. um, My family, everybody told stories at the dinner table, and mostly there were stories about jams we got ourselves into in one way or another, or something really notable that happened during the day. Over the years, I've developed this huge repertoire of stories. And then I started a, a public art career where I did commissions for cities and states and universities, institutions. And that was my, my storytelling ability at that point was very helpful in, in garnering those commissions. And I was also am and was a great joke teller. And they're, they're somewhat similar skills. In 2008, when the economic collapse happened, you know, uh, there was very little money around for public art. And then also when COVID started, same thing. So I began to to do my podcast series at that point. And since I've been a compulsive storyteller, that's the name of my podcast. And I, I've posted 70 stories to date, I think. And they're almost all short um, audio stories with, with sound effects and music that basically um, from my life that describe a jam I got myself into and how I dug myself out. That's what keeps people listening. A couple of things I want to, um, you, you mentioned being a great joke teller and I feel mm-hmm. like that's, what's the old saying of theater? Uh, if you see a gun in the first act, it better, um, show up again in the third act. So, mm-hmm. um, I won't put you on the spot at this moment, but I'm, I'm going to ask for a joke before we're finished. Um, sure. but, uh, but besides that, you said something also at some point in your podcast about a therapist suggesting yes. you tell podcasts because they were good for your career, but maybe weren't so good for some of your personal relationships. Do I remember that right? Yes. Uh, let me speak to both those things. I'll tell you a good, I'll tell you a, a sh- two short jokes. You may want to cut one, but one of them is a, is a great, it's sort of a clean, dirty joke. And that is, an old guy says to his wife, let's go upstairs and have sex. And she says, you think we can do both? <laughs> and the second one is, I just heard this one, and I've just, the secret of a joke is as soon as you hear it, you need to tell it. Um, and my second joke is um, a guy goes into a bar and very pretty bartender and interesting bar. And above the bar, there's a sign and it says beers, you know, draft beer, $1, hand job, $10. And so the guy smiles and looks at him and says, well, I have, I have, I have two requests for you. The first is um, I'd like a beer. 
And the second is, and she smiles, waiting for the obvious request. And he says, um, wash your hands. <laughs> I, I love both of those because I, in, in my podcast, Square Peg, I feel like it has a lot of range of emotions, a lot mm -hmm. of topics. But one thing it does not have is any sex in it. So finally, uh, there will be some sex in my podcast right. feed. So uh, I appreciate go. that. You and you, and then you were going to um, talk about uh, your therapist and yes. your... I realized as I, in my middle years, that I, I really was an obsession and I couldn't control myself. And when I got, when I had a few drinks under my belt at a dinner party, for example, I would just start telling my stories and people were engaged and people by and large liked it, but certainly not, not my, my significant other, my closest friends and, and my, my wives, I've been married three times, um, got tired of it, which I totally understand. And as time went on, um, I realized that when I'm nervous, I also tend to fill the silence. And when I would meet a very important person, um, and this happened, a few of these happened in a row, which led me to, to seek out some psychiatric help. Um, for example, I met the director of the Guggenheim Museum, who could be enormously helpful to me in my art career. And I started, because I was nervous, he's also a very tall guy, and and he's he's met all the great artists in the world, and what am I doing? I'm telling him my, my art stories, blah, 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 blah. And he, I could see his eyes glaze over, and he said, well, this is nice to meet you, and he was gone. I had like three minutes of his time, and he was gone. And that was a one-time only. Um, so So events like that, made me think, I, I really need some help here. So I went to see a, a shrink. And his suggestion was maybe if you if you make a podcast out of your stories and you externalize them and, and by you know by by telling them in your podcast, you will have more control over them. And maybe you can get beyond this problem. So Rob, you, you've heard you've heard uh, you know a, a fairly long version of how I got to where I am. So why don't you um you do the same? So get us from from maybe even start young from well were there earlier obsessions in your life the way you were obsessively involved with frank carver and if there were when did they start and how did they unfold and then work your way towards carver i have a bit of an artist in me as well um and i've always from a young age have have written things written plays written screenplays wrote first half of a novel when I was young, nothing that I'm ever would ever want to share. Um, but it's it's always been a part of me. So I've had a, a, a need to express. And I early, early on became interested in interested in filmmaking and did a couple of documentaries when I was in high school that won some awards. And that led me to want to go to film school, which I did to uh, in the early 90s to uh, the film school at Florida State. And um, I, it was just always an itch. It wasn't it, it, it wasn't a compulsion. Well, maybe it was a compulsion. Um, I'm, I'm, I can't go through long periods of my life without having having a, a, a creative outlet. Not that that's terribly unique. I know it's not, but I've also, but I've, I've never been. Uh, well, I don't think I've ever been talented enough to 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 have to have that support myself. And so I've 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 found ways to. Kind of blend the two. So, at, jumping to the end, how I've made my living for the past twenty plus years is as a uh, 
a video producer, but of largely corporate uh, type videos. And 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 certain certain of them have had a a lot of creativity to them. And even the mundane ones, you know, there's always creativity and to setting the lights right and to uh, making sure the guy who's reading from the teleprompter does it right. It's more of a craft, but um, mm-hmm. but but it's that that kind of stuff still doesn't quite fill scratch the itch. So over the years, I've done short films, oh, uh, 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 more screenplays, um, and, and it's just always been something. And at a, in around the year 2017, early 2017, I was in one of those lulls and received this email that was not intended intended for me. It was, um, and I don't really tell the story in the podcast in much detail, but um, it was uh, it was specifically written to me. It said, uh, "Hello, Rob. I've been on your website, and I uh, uh, I'm interested." And and he and and this man who I later learned was Frank Carver, uh, uh, a man in his early 70s at that point from Northern England. He asked me all these specific questions about. Um, he was trying to find where his grandmother lived in this uh, in Lincolnshire, and oh, he was trying to find locate i think with a long lost love and he who is he was who is in the raf but he was asking me all these obscure questions about um geography in northern england it was pretty clear that it wasn't intended for me at that point i'd never actually been to england and he uh and it was just i, I almost just hit delete i and, and maybe i should have but uh there was just enough you know he talked about how his grandmother um live next to a skunk farm. And it really, it was, if nothing else, it was skunk farm that made me hit reply to say, Frank, I don't, I don't think this is intended for me, but, um, uh, but I'm curious, you know, t- how did you find me? You're on my website. I just couldn't figure that out. And then what the hell is a skunk farm? Um, that led to some emails back and forth. And he, uh, it turned out he was, he was, uh, on the, uh, website of a, of a blogger, a British blogger named Rod Collins, R-O-D. And at that point, on, and he just wrote a blog about all sorts of things in Northern England. And he was trying to contact that guy. And and that guy's at that time on his website to contact Rod Collins. He didn't have a hyperlink. He had, um, I don't know if you've ever seen this. I don't think they do it much anymore. But to cut down on spam, it was just a little JPEG that had his email address spelled out and it was rod at rodcollins.com. And so Frank had to manually type that email address into right. his email program and he he swapped the D with the B and instead he raised Rob at RobCollins.com. Right. And he uh uh and so that was revealed. But then I came to learn that the reason he made that typo in part was that his his uh he was nearly blind. He couldn't see very well because Fifty years earlier, allegedly, his older brother, while they were both in the army, stabbed his eye out with a drinking glass, and that led to a lawsuit against the Ministry of Defense. And to this day, fifty years later, he was trying to get his elderly brother brother thrown in jail. And you know, I may not um, be a great artist, but I I know a good story when it comes to me. So uh, initially, I was just boy, I, I've got to do something with this. He he had written a book. He sent me a copy of that. Fascinating life. I thought about um doing um, some sort of video, because that's what I do. And at about that time, the the podcast uh, S-Town came out, um, um, done by Brian Reed and the This American Life folks. And there was some similarities in how the protagonist in S-Town contacted the podcaster. But I just love the way he told the story. And I, I love that kind of uh, This American Life kind of uh, audio storytelling anyway. 
And I just thought, what the hell? Um, I'm up for something new. I've got all the equipment. I do audio for my own videos. Why not turn this into a into a podcast? So I started recording some uh, Skype sessions with him, really got into the depths of his story. And um, a f- oh, five, six months later, I just thought, what the heck? I've got a little extra money in my bank account. I'm going to go to England and investigate this thing. And I say in, this, in the podcast that it uh, was a bit of a midlife crisis, and maybe that was true, maybe it wasn't. Uh, but I did. I was seeking both a creative outlet and a uh, and an adventure. And then, then the story one, once, and I won't. I'll, I'll try not to give away any spoilers to what happened. Um, but it won't shock anyone who hasn't heard it to to know that um, the Frank story didn't turn out to be quite exactly. You know, things were not quite exactly as Frank said. Right. And uh, that led to a a kind of a second phase in the story where I had to figure out what was up with Frank. Why was he the way he was? He had received several mental health um, diagnoses over the years. Um, I'd seen reports from psychiatrists because as part of his lawsuit, he had to be examined and it was public record. You know, it got really deep in the weeds um, with all of that. But But it became an obsession for me. Like, what? He, he, I think he really believes what he's saying. And, and is that a psychosis? Is that a, a mental health disorder? And uh, that became the next compulsion and led me, amongst other places, to the uh, offices of a psychiatrist in Berlin who um, revealed uh, through his acumen what may have actually been going on with Frank. And uh, so I'll leave that cliffhanger for anyone who hasn't heard it yet to, to, uh, to get the answer, or at least part of it. So I'm just curious about how much, how much actual away from away from your home and family, do you think you accumulated over the entire enterprise? Yeah, in ballpark? terms of in terms of being physically separated, it wasn't that much. There were three separate trips uh, to Europe. The final one to officiate Frank's funeral, um, and maybe all told it was only it was less than two weeks um where i where i was Mm -hmm. traveling Mm -hmm. but (laughs) uh the amount of time i spent uh here uh working on it and and researching and going down all sorts of rabbit holes that i could do remotely that gets into the uh measuring in terms of uh weeks and months not 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 days yes so that was uh that, that that was uh and, 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 you know, I, I think my wife would tell you, and you, you hear my wife's voice several times in the podcast, that um, she's always been kind of bemused by my, uh, my, my little creative needs and, and, and is supportive when she can. She was very hesitant and very uh, threw up lots of red flags about what the hell am I doing with this bizarre man from Northern England. But um, right. I'd say overall, it, uh, I, I won't say it helped my marriage, but it, it I'm still married to her, so yes, let's put it that good. way. That's good. And and what would you just ballpark, what would what kind of money do you think you invested in the whole enterprise? Yeah, and just actual expenditures, not paying myself for my time, it's it's less than twenty thousand okay. dollars. And uh and and I've told you before, Greg, I have yet to make a, a dime off this. And even if that stays the case forever. I've got no regrets because that, that 20,000, yeah, it was spent in a variety of ways, but a lot of it was just spent on travel. I mean, and mm-hmm. who doesn't love to go travel and have an adventure? So Absolutely, it, it, yeah. yeah, it was uh, <clears throat> certainly not, uh, 
plus travel if you're if you're on a mission is m much more pleasurable than just paddling along you know yeah so um i i wanted to uh, transition that because i mentioned fact checking and um what i did with that and i know you talk about fact checking but uh in your stories but uh before getting to that as i listen to your stories greg i'm just and and you sort of hit on this when you talked about how you repeat a joke and repeat a story with your family but you know you have the recall you, some of your stories are things that happened to you 50 or more years ago and you have uh, memory over details and you paint a picture with your words that's 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 very vivid and of course the music helps and so on but i found myself wondering what does does this guy just have an amazing memory did he take great notes from an early age write a journal H how do you or 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 does do the stories get embellished um Good that's question. my next question for you yeah how, how do you remember so, all this stuff a number of my stories were very very vivid details and i have i don't have a, exactly what you'd call a photographic memory but if i i just did this recently i, I remembered it was kind of like frank an old girlfriend contacted me and i was able to pull up in my mind's eye a photograph of her which i had it was in a big pile of photos over these I looked at two or three times over, you know, 50 years. But as I was able to remember her hairstyle, kind of what she was wearing, and, and most interestingly, the background, what was behind her. And so I do have a kind of a photo recall. You know, photographic memory, those words were very popular, and that concept was very popular quite a while ago, and you don't hear it much anymore. But I have something that's slightly different than most other people. Um, and also, because my family retold stories, it, it goes into the vault because you've heard it early on when it shortly after it happened. If you've heard it five times, it's it does tend to stick in a way that um, if you didn't hear it five times, you, it wouldn't. Well, what it makes me think of what I <clears throat> think of how I perceive you through your, your podcast is, I mean, number one, I think I've had a, uh, I'm about to turn 50. I think I've had a pretty, pretty interesting life, had some good experiences. Um, but man, I listen to your life story and I think I have been just wasting too much time. I mean, because <laughs> from, I mean, your early job on the submarine to, um, oh gosh, uh, how many different how many different jobs have you had? Things that have have paid you? Would you guess fifty? But yes. I, I also wanted to be I, when I was young. I wanted to be a writer, so I took jobs that were interesting from a kind of a writing point of view. Right. Um, and and also, I'm very curious, and that's one of the things that probably separates you from most people is I'm fearless about sticking my nose where it doesn't belong. I'm curious. And I have sort of an investigative reporter's attitude. And that gets me into a lot of jams. <laughs> um, but also the jams themselves are, are fodder for stories. Um, yeah, you, you, you tell some stories of being in some tight situations. Yeah. <laughs> and I have one of the things that also sets me apart that I don't think I mentioned to you was, so I'm 77 years old. When um, Floyd, when George Floyd was murdered, which I think was... Was that three years ago now, maybe? It was summer of 2020. Yeah. So 
I sat down and made a list of all the times I'd had trouble with the police in my life. And so I came up with 36 different very negative interactions with the police. And the first one bears telling because it was the, be the beginning. Um, I used to hitchhike home when I was in college from Boston, where I was going to school, to my parents' house, which was out in, out, out in, the, in the countryside outside of Albany. And the best way for me to hitchhike was to get off between exits uh, on the New York State Thruway. And then I would climb the perimeter fence and go down through a little pine woods to a country diner where I would call my mother. She'd come and pick me up. And it was a very short hop to, to the house, whereas if I'd gotten off at the you know, an exit, it was much longer drive or in either direction. And when I came down the hill, there was a New York State Troopers car parked in front of the diner. And I didn't think much about it, but I, I called my mother and then I went inside. It was the same ritual every time I had a piece of pie and a cup of coffee. But as I came into the um, diner, these two state troopers, and they wear those Smokey the Bear hats and, you know, very starchy uniforms, kind of gray uniforms with their badges. One of them said, oh, what do we have here? And I had very long hair. That's a crucial part of the story. All right. He said, what do we have here? A girl or a boy? And I said, a fucking boy. Bang. They both grabbed me, dragged me outside, um, pushed me against the car, kicked my legs apart, had my hands up on the hood. And at that exact moment, my mother came around the corner in our car and saw what was happening. And she just was brilliant. She she sp sped right up to us just the way the cops do it when they're when they're stopping some kind of an altercation and they had to actually jump back and she said what's going on here officers and they said uh, is this your son and she said yes it is my son and, and 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 they said well you should teach him some manners and i said no no you should have manners and not be asking if i'm a girl or a boy and so my mother then said um well i guess we're finished here <laughs> and um, so she, but here's what was beautiful. She backed up a little, I got into the car, she backed up a little bit, she made a U-turn, then she stepped on the gas of the cinders, just, just peppered the policeman, and off we went. And that was my first sort of negative interaction with the cops, and it sort of set the tone for my whole life, not being afraid, and that's ultimately, I'm a very slow learner, and you, you know, what I finally learned was to say, yes, sir, no, sir, I'm sorry, sir, it'll never happen again, <laughs> but it took me, I, you know, I mean, my most recent altercation was with some police in Tiananmen Square, which was only like eight years ago. Oh, wow. And, and so I have always spoken my mind, and I've been very lucky. I've been beat up. I've been jailed. But, but had I been a, a person of color, I would be dead many times over mm -hmm. um, by now. So. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I can't. I can't let that pass without um, asking you a little bit more about your mother. And I, I, I want to point people, I mean, there's so many great episodes, but the um, the episode where you talk about your mother, uh, remind me of the title. It's called Me Too Mom. Me Too Mom. Oh, please listen to this. And I don't want you to tell the entirety of it, but I do want you to say a little bit about, because when you, you I imagine your mother coming into that scene, I'm imagining your mother, the pilot. Yes. So my mother was one of the first female pilots in World War II. The Air Force started something called the WASPs, which was women's American service pilots. And they were losing a lot of fighter pilots in Europe being shot down. And they were trying to figure out a way to get you know, more pilots. And they thought, well, if we, a lot of pilots are teaching 
how to fly in the Air Force. If we taught women how to teach men how to fly, then those seasoned pilots could be released for combat duty immediately. So they chose they chose a thousand out of ten thousand applicants um, to train how to how to teach flying. And so my mother um, was one of the women chosen, and she was trained at, at Sweetwater, Texas Air Force Base. And because being who she is, and she's just a strong, forthright, fearless woman, um, she had trouble almost immediately. She was giving a, a fellow a, a flight test, and he decided to buzz the tower to show her a thing or two. And he managed to hit the equipment on the top of the tower and strip the landing gear from the plane. And they had to land with a foamed runway. And she brought charges against the guy. And this was a base where there was like, I think, 100 women and 10,000 men. And during the trial, and the guy was sentenced to a year in, in military mm. prison, um, she had death threats and was they had to move her to another job. Um, so there, there, she was moved from there to being the private pilot for a general. And, and she never told me how that ended, but I think she was a good looking woman. And I think he chose her for a reason. And that ended. And the next job they gave her was ferrying planes from where they were manufactured to where they were going to be deployed um, throughout America. And at that moment, the, they had just um, started manufacturing something called a P-38, which was a twin fuselage, huge fighter bomber that was a single single pilot plane. And so it was the hot new plane. And she was flying one from Detroit, where it was manufactured, to Atlanta, where it was going to be deployed. And every place she landed, you know, she was like, a, everybody wanted to see the plane. And she was sort of like a superstar with this new plane. And then when she got to Atlanta, in those days, if it was a clear day, you, you flew a circle around the tower, then you called in for landing instructions. So she flew her circle around the tower, and the tower came, came back on and said, get off the air, lady. We're trying to bring in a P-38. And she got to say, I am the P-38. Oh, um, God, I love that. Yeah, so. I love that. Well, and I want to I ask, too, um, I don't want to get too psychoanalytical, but we talked um, when we talked the other day about you and I have in common that um, we've, if not had more friends who are women than men, at least have had more uh, women friends than the typical, typical guy. And in one of yeah. your episodes, you talk about how you think that, um, that a lot of men, and you said maybe especially uh, in years gone by, may be straight men, may love women, but may not actually like women all that yep, much. Exactly. And when you, when you, uh, it's, it's not escaped some listeners' attention for Square Peg that aside from Frank and me, well, and I guess in the psychiatrist, I kind of surrounded myself with women to help me tell the story. And I've, I've, I've always been 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 drawn to women as friends and as colleagues. Um, and I just wonder having a mother like you had, who was was so strong and and told stories and had those experiences. How, how do you think that shaped how you related with women after that? Um. So after the war, she bought her own plane. Um, she was also very an enterprising businesswoman. She just found ways to make money. Um, and so, and we, we, my father was transferred from Buffalo to Albany, where she knew no, she had no friends. And he was very, he was an AT&T executive and he was very busy with his job. And we, we also rented a, a barn on a, on a farm which had been renovated into an apartment. 
on a hill overlooking Albany. And so it was a very kind of isolated place. She had a big garden and I, and she and I did a lot of day trips in her plane and we went all over the place. Um, and it was just, I guess because it was happened when I was so young, I didn't think it was that exceptional, but we had many, many adventures and, and, and my art, a lot of the art I do that's underfoot, I think relates back to flying around with her. And she was, she never tired of pointing out different features of the terrain from above, like what a drive-in theater looks like and what a irrigation circle looks like. And, you know, many, many, and I, I spent a lot of time looking down. She also would bank the plane so that I could look down. It's, I think it's called crabbing where you tip one wing down, but you fly straight. And so I think that was the beginning for a lot of my interest in, in topographical art and also art underfoot. Um, and at the same time, she had no friends. And so we had this very strong relationship. And over time, she told me the stories I just told you about her. Those were all stories that she told me. And we also, I also had firsthand experiences of the way she was treated by men a number of times. But one I remember in particular was we landed at a small airport with a grass runway. Um, and as we, we went in, did, I think we went into a cafeteria. And as we came out, there were four motor mechanics working on an engine. And one of them said to me, and she was holding me by the hand, and she was dressed, you know, it, it was a very, it was kind of a sexy period of time where women wore short shorts and they had sort of halter top sundresses. And so she was dressed in a, in a uh, attractive, somewhat sex, sexy way. And one of the guys said, um, hi, do you love your mother? And I said, uh, yeah, I, mean, I was kind of nonplussed. And he said, he said, I'd love to love your mother. And all the guys laughed. And my mother just pulled me away. And I had no, and I, she wouldn't talk to me, but she was mad. And she wouldn't talk to me about what that was about. And it wasn't until later that I, I real, I, you know, I kind of got it. And those kinds of things happened many times. I want to kind of wrap up by going back to talking about um, compulsions and how they have served and have not served you. And I'm relating it in in the story of Frank to um, the the metaphor he used. Uh, well, the metaphor that's uh, that the the cliche metaphor that describes him so well of a square peg in a round hole, and he had. As you'll hear in it, he had a had a uh, thing that he he had he had made that with a sleight of hand trick he could make a square peg fit into a round hole, and that was kind of his mantra that um, anything is possible basically if you just keep pushing hard enough. And I said at his funeral that um, that really was him, and it, uh, it in most cases, or at least in many cases, it just caused a lot of friction and it hurt people around him and it hurt him, and yet, and yet. Uh, it also made him who he was, and it made, I say that it made his life and it made life in general more interesting. And as I say that, I, I think of some of the people who it hurt and I, it makes me hesitate, but it's, but it's true. When you, when you don't kind of accept life on life's terms and, and, uh, and, and have a compulsion and it, it, it just makes life less boring, and I wonder if 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 you view your compulsions that way, since you see the 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 dark and the light side of them so well. Um, I don't think I mean consciously it makes sense what you said, 
I don't think I thought of it that way. I just didn't have a choice. Mm. Um, it's like telling my stories. I, I'm still, you know, like last night I was at an opening at the Guggenheim and a, and a friend and I sat outside um, on the wall of the Guggenheim and I, I caught myself, I told a couple stories about the opening because she arrived very late and I had some interesting adventures, including meeting Adrian Brody. That was nice. We had a long chat. But I caught myself and turned the conversation toward her and asked her a bunch of questions, which is the, the mechanism I've learned that works best is just to you know keep focused on others. So, but I don't think I was been consciously aware of making my life more interesting. Um, but I certainly never get bored. Um, mm. I, I can, I, I mean, I, I am, I can't think of a time when I'm bored because I just have a long list of things I want, I want to do. Um, and part of that's my mother's energy, my mother's family, they were all f pushing forward. They were all go-getters. That's an old term, but, um, and I have a lot of that too. So um, I just, you know, like for, for example, retiring, and, and artists by and large don't retire anyway, but the idea of retiring, it's like a kind of a joke to me. Yeah. Um, could you also, just to wrap up, um, suggest maybe two or three episodes of The Compulsive Storyteller that you'd recommend to for people to get a flavor for it? Uh, the, the episodes I would recommend, it's very hard to choose, um, would be Me Too Mom is a good one that's mm -hmm. sort of a tragedy. Um, there's another one called Fantasy Phone, which is a, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's, I had a relationship with somebody who became sort of the founder of the phone sex industry. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a great and, one. And then I have another one called, um, Love is a Bitch. And it's about a woman, a, a real con artist who came into my life and completely took advantage of me. Oh, and that's um, the just brutal eight million, story. Eight million dollar lawsuit or something yes, like that? Yes, $8.4 million lawsuit, yes. Well, well if you'd allow me, I'd, I'd recommend a couple more that I enjoyed, which were, um, uh, and uh, Dog Graffiti was yep. really funny. And Thank the, you, yeah. And the one I, um, I, I alluded to when talking about your job in a submarine is called, I believe it's called Mario and the Atomic Hard Hat. Yes. Right. Yeah. I really, I really liked that one. That was, oh my gosh. The I was really proud of the writing and the character was a character. Really Mario is just, is he's fantastic. not unlike Frank Carver in some ways. Yeah. That's, that's um, a good, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. Frank did kind of like throwing a, a spanner in the wrench as, exactly. uh, as they say. Yeah. A spanner in the works. <laughs> spanner in the works. That's exactly right. Um, I think um, that's the name of one of his chapters actually. And one um, more I would recommend yeah. uh, that's a funny one is called Ratatouille 2. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, that's oh, the, a, that poor a, French a diplomat. Topic. Yes, exactly. exactly. So. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, uh, I wish I could I could reciprocate. I've only got one podcast for, to recommend, but I will say I've had some ideas here and there for other things to do. But I kind of feel like, in a way, I'm waiting for the next Frank Carver to uh, to email me. So anybody out there wants uh, has some mental health issues and wants me to get involved in their life, just uh, give me an email. <laughs> I can't believe I said that yeah. out loud, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So. Greg, this has been really really great. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, you have any kind of outro or words of wisdom you want to pass on? Um, hmm. Okay, I have two contradictory ones. One is, um, truth can be stranger than fiction. 
And two is never miss an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Which comes from an episode that, uh, that uh, yeah, oh, there's so many that re- recommend them all. Um, yeah. But that's, that's great. Yeah. Um, and that is, that is a, a wonderfully ironic um, uh, saying for a podcaster to never miss an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. But I can count many times in my life that I wish I had uh, followed that advice. Yeah. So. All right. Well, listen, thank you too. It's been a pleasure for me as well. 